Welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. We have a great show for you today, but first, I want to ask you for a favor. Please subscribe to this podcast, if you don't already, that is. Also, take a second to rate and review our show in your podcast app, especially if you're a regular listener. That will help other people find us. We'd really appreciate it. Okay, let's get started. Now that the Halloween season is upon us, we thought it would be a good time to look into our fascination with fear, whether it's telling a good ghost story or listening to a true crime podcast. We wanted to find out more about this trend, so we're speaking with Seth Gillihan, a clinical professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Hi, Seth. Welcome back to the podcast. Hello, Carrie. Good to be here. So we tell ghost stories and those have been around for centuries at this point. In non-COVID years, people stood in line to get into haunted house attractions just to get scared. Why do humans like to be scared? Is it just a fun adrenaline rush, or is there something maybe deeper at play? Well, it's a really interesting question. Interesting to me in part because I am not someone who generally likes to be scared. I'm not either. I still, (laughs) no, I, I, I remember... I think it was in second grade, they showed us these scary movies around Halloween. And I still remember those, uh, those l- little movies they showed us and still find them quite scary. Like, and, and, and scary movies that I've seen more recently, like what was the one uh, with Naomi Watts, uh, The Ring? Oh my goodness. Oh, I know. That's really bad. <laughs> Terrifying. And yet, you know, there was a kind of morbid curiosity like you know it's supposed to be one of the best horror movies of all Mm -hmm. time like i just wanted to know like could i could i watch it and then unwatch it obviously not but but there is something about so many of us that is drawn to these uh, to these experiences i mean that's why there's this huge industry that produces these things and so you mentioned an adrenaline rush that may be part of it. I mean, the, the, the intense emotional rush that we can get from fear doesn't necessarily feel that different at, at a certain physiological level than the excitement from uh, something less, that's not terrifying, but maybe just uh, exhilarating. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, probably a similar reason why people bungee jump and ride roller coasters because there is something enjoyable about danger within a relatively safe container. Right. Experiencing that level of fear and thrill while still kind of knowing that you're, you're really probably going to be okay. Yeah. You know what? It seems like it's, it's people like that heightened sense of being alive while knowing they're still going to be alive. And then not only like those ghost stories and, and scary movies and things like that, but the crime story as a form of entertainment is nothing new. There's Sherlock Holmes and even modern day things like Law and Order. What fascinates us about this type of tale in general? Maybe there's just the satisfaction of figuring out who done it, uh, or is it a way to maybe sort of look death in the eye and, and win? Well, I think there is definitely a, a, a pleasure that we get in trying to puzzle through an unsolved case. And, and especially when the producers feed us clues that help us to, to figure it out and, and feel smart. I remember reading Dan Brown's book, um, The Da Vinci Code. 
and you know this kind this kind of international whodunit. And you know it was fun to follow the case, but also the the clues just seemed so obvious. You know, sort of like uh, uh, pandering to the reader a little bit. But that's a bit of an aside. But I, I think that's that's one dimension. But but yeah, there's there's obviously a lot of other things going on. I think one one hypothesis could be that you know there's darkness that lives inside all of us, and again, you know, we don't want to act on those things and actually, you know, perpetrate crime and, and certainly not get caught and, and go to prison. But, you know, maybe it's fun to sort of explore that world again from a safe distance to see. Uh, I mean, on the one hand, there is the sort of you know, facing it from the outside and, and maybe there's some kind of uh, a feeling of courage in doing that. But, but, you know, maybe also it's part of our shadow part of wanting to get in touch with the, the darker parts of ourselves. That makes sense. It's something that most people probably won't be involved in any sort of crime situation like that. So it's a way to sort of get a look at that in a safe manner, I suppose. Yeah. And we've probably all had these impulses like, oh, I'm so mad I could just kill someone. And the vast majority of us, thankfully, wouldn't and don't. But you know, maybe there's some enjoyment in, in seeing those things you know, acted out by someone else. Right. You know, I, I should also, this reminds me, we also enjoy not only being you know, frightened ourselves in certain ways, but also in, in scaring other people and thinking back right. to, I mean, I was a pretty mild-mannered you know, 10-year-old or so, pretty much just a smaller version of myself less bald. <laughs> I remember, I mean, you know, I wasn't, I didn't tend to terrorize my parents, but there was this one Sunday we came home from church. I got home before my mom did and I hid in the coat closet. And when she opened the door to put her coat away, I jumped out and screamed at her. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. <laughs> and it was, it was so satisfying, but I mean, what, like, why? Why would <laughs> why like would you do something her. like why would you do something like that to your mother <laughs> right yes who you know i love and but it was so it's like oh i'm gonna get her it's gonna be great <laughs> or you know my i think my brother hid in my room one time and and uh at night and put his hand on the light switch so that when i i came you know to, to the door and, and reached around to turn on the light i felt this warm you know hand <laughs> on the light switch and Oh man, that would scare me even today. So <laughs> I got to say, oh gosh. Yeah, there is some sort of like, yeah, that kind of thrill. Like if, I don't know if you'll think it's funny or you'll just kind of be, you know, triumphant that you were able to pull something off, but. Yeah, it's a little bit like an April Fool's joke, which is a different kind of fear. But, but I mean, I, I don't think other people tend to agree with me on this, but I find that a good April Fool's joke is a very generous gift to give someone because they're just going along, minding their own business, having like probably a humdrum day. And then they get this terrible news, like they're being audited or, you know, the, the dishwasher has flooded the basement or their, their husband and, and daughter have a stomach bug, just, you know, random examples. And, and then they find out it's not true. And life is just amazing, just their ordinary life. It's no different than it was before, but this thing they thought was happening isn't. I, 
I just, yeah, I've, I've stopped doing it as much because people complain, but I think they're really missing out. <laughs> there seems to be a history here that we probably need to talk about on a later podcast. I'd like to hear all well, your, your ideas for April Fool's jokes. <laughs> yeah, and they, they just got better and better, I think. <laughs> well, and you're gifting that person with the rush of relief when they find out that it's not true. So <laughs> Exactly. And they keep remembering, oh, thank goodness, nobody has a stomach bug. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. Keep that in mind. <laughs> well, let's pivot to, to true crime. Again, this is nothing new. Every school kid knows who Lizzie Borden and Jack the Ripper are. But over the past few years, it seems like there's been really this explosion of true crime, you know, books, shows, documentaries, and podcasts. And fictional crime is one thing. But bad things happening to real people, that's something else. Um, what do you make of this trend, this fascination with these true crime stories? Yeah, it is. It is fascinating and, and definitely nothing new. You know, I think back to the, probably in the 80s, my friends would watch these, these death movies, Faces of Death or something that would show supposedly actual people uh, you know, in accidents or things where they were killed. Right. There is this weird sort of, I mean, I, I say weird, it's only weird because a bit, a bit puzzling, uh, this fascination with a kind of voyeuristic um, draw to, to witness these kinds of things. And it seems like to, to some extent, the more horrifying, the, the stronger the reaction. You know, people... Well, there are expressions like, you know, it's like a train wreck. I couldn't look away. Mm-hmm. And and why? <laughs> and we're like, yeah, yeah, like a train wreck. Yeah, definitely. Why can't we look away from train wrecks? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, when someone gets pulled over on the side of the road, you, know, you hear on the, on the traffic reports all the time, we've got a gaper delay on 476. <laughs> and, you know, you're, you're, you're driving on the highway and you're like, oh man, like what is all this traffic? And then finally you see a cop pulled someone over. Like there's really nothing to see, but people slow down just to, you know, to take in what's happened or if there's an accident for sure, you know, even on the other side of the road, people slow down. They want to see like, what's the, what's the bad news? I mean, I, I guess a positive interpretation and, you know, I don't think we know the ultimate answer, but a, a positive spin could be that, you know, we, we want to help and we want to know, you know, what's the, they, even if we don't have the, um, even if we don't have the conscious awareness I want to be helpful here. Maybe there's something programmed into us that if there is the possibility of harm having come to humans that we need to attend to it and, you know, with the, with the possibility of being helpful, or maybe if there's, if there is some kind of danger involved, we need to know what it is so that we, so that we can avoid that danger ourselves. And the same, the same with fights, you know, think back to junior high and high school and there are these fist fights. All I had to do was yell fight and you know, hundreds <laughs> of students would come and and you know crowd around to see the you know two people tearing each other apart. Probably and, one know, of the oldest forms of entertainment. <laughs> yes, yeah, truly. I mean, you know, going back to I guess the Colosseum, you know, where people would, would see you know, Christians torn apart by lions. I think mm-hmm. is the part of that history. Kind of amazing uh, that there is this this kind of public uh, this this drive to, to witness these awful things. I wonder and, if there's a, a taboo element to true crime that also mm, appeals to some people. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that must be a part of it too. Yeah. This, 
I mean, this is stuff that obviously, as we said earlier, we don't we don't do and we don't talk about that much. But there, but there's a kind of there's a I mean, there, there's a shock factor, and and even that shock can be a, a kind of there can be a, a sort of enjoyment in that. Like, oh, I can't, I can't believe what they did. Tell me more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everyone, almost like a fascination sort of to understand what is driving someone to do that. Mm. Cause that's not something a lot of people would ever be able to, to identify with, you know, sort of being inside the mind of the criminal. Yeah. 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 No, that's a, that's a great point, Carrie. I think there is a lot of, of, I mean, we're, we're all kind of amateur psychologists and, you know, wanting to understand this thing called human nature. And, and again, probably, in part, wanting to understand ourselves and what, what we might be capable of. Mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, everyone might ask themselves at some point, wow, like, could I do that? Like, I've been super angry before, right? I've felt like I was fired unjustly. Could I you know, turn into to that kind of monster? And you see this in really pronounced form in some types of obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD, where a person worries like what? What if I, you know, snap and hurt my family, or I act impulsively and and stab someone, and and those for for uh, for individuals with that condition, a kind of harm related OCD, stories about you know awful things that people have done can can be quite terrifying because there's always the the sense of you know how am I similar to this person. Oh, a, a father of two who had no history of violence, you know, was uh, re- recently, uh, you know, allegedly killed his wife and family. And mm-hmm. and person thinks, well, I, I have no history of violence and I have, uh, you know, I'm, I'm married now, two kids. Could I do that? Mm-hmm. So maybe there is that, that kind of implicit question about ourselves. Yeah. Like kind of almost checking on your, <laughs> how mentally you know, stable or unstable, you might be like, is that possible? Could I really go through with something like that? That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, yeah. Let me, let me check myself. Am I safe here? Or am mm-hmm. I a threat to someone? That's so interesting. Do you think this is an, a healthy or an unhealthy interest or maybe does it just depend on the person and their level of fascination? Well, I mean, for the most part, some of, some of the, people I know seem the most psychologically healthy and well-adjusted seem to have the most fascination for these kinds of things way beyond my own. So I don't think it's necessarily healthy or unhealthy. I guess I would just, you know, wonder if it's, as long as it's serving the person, I don't see a, a, a harm in it. I mean, obviously if it goes to pathological levels where someone is, um, participating in things that are that um, are actually contributing to you know, harming other people, then that's clearly uh, wrong and, and immoral and, uh, and yeah, yeah. And something we shouldn't do. Not, not but, good. Yes. And not, <laughs> not good. Yes. In case, <laughs> in case anything doesn't go without saying, but, um, but I, I think, it's easy to judge other people's interests and say, you know, that's, that's wrong. That's pathological. Or people say like, 
you know, it's a, a morbid fascination and, and it may be morbid in, in one sense uh, that it involves uh, sickness and death, but, um, but, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's serving some, some helpful function, just like, you know, dressing up in, in scary costumes and going around, uh, you know, getting, getting candy. I mean, that's kind of yeah. a weird thing to do, but it seems <laughs> to also have a, a function. <laughs> Jumping out of the closet and scaring your mother to death, you know, things like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a great trick. If any 10 year olds are listening, <laughs> keep that one in mind. Um, so if you find yourself, you know, watching Dexter for the 10th time and you're concerned about your sanity on some level, will any positive change in viewing or listening material help? You know, should you try to go 180 degrees and watch, you know, the puppy bowl all day online? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think watching puppy bowl nonstop, I think that's good for anyone that's all the time. So, <laughs> but you know, seriously, I, I would I would be careful about doing that kind of neutralizing behavior. I mean, if if someone you know feels like they need a kind of of palate cleanser and you know, they want to want to watch, watch some Hearts and Rainbows you know, rom com or something afterwards, I can I can understand that. But there, there is a I mean, certainly for pe- people with OCD, the the core problem is trying to neutralize those behaviors, trying to make sure that they're safe. Most of us don't fall into that category, but, but I don't think it's something we should necessarily worry about that I need to balance, you know, things out entirely. Um, I would, you know, again, assuming that it's not causing someone actual problems in their life, I would just kind of let their interests guide them and let things be what they are. Well, Hallmark Christmas movie season is just around the corner. So if nothing else, you can go in that direction too. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Dr. Seth Gillihan, thank you so much. It was fascinating as always to talk to you. Well, thank you, Carrie. Great speaking with you and happy Halloween. Happy Halloween to you. October 31st is just around the corner. And if you're like me, we're wondering what to do for Halloween. We don't want to deprive the kids of any more fun this year than they've already had taken away, but we do want to keep them safe. And that means many pre-COVID-19 celebrations are out of the question. To get some ideas on how to safely handle the holiday, we're talking to WebMD Senior Medical Director Hansa Bargava. Hansa, welcome to the podcast again. Thank you for having me, Carrie. First off, this is a question you've explored in a WebMD blog. Should we just cancel Halloween altogether this year? I don't think we have to cancel Halloween. I think cancel is a really rough word, especially given all the stress that families and kids have encountered this year, but we definitely need to modify it to make sure it's safe. Do you have any suggestions for how to tell kids who are old enough to remember previous Halloweens why things need to be different this year? So uh, that's a great point, Carrie. So for the younger kids, you don't necessarily have to explain how things are different. I think as long as you know, you show, you tell them that it's a fun holiday, that you can do so many different things, uh, then it should be okay. For older kids, I think that they probably have heard in the news about coronavirus, about COVID, and certainly that our schools will be affected one way or the other. So I think you can thread that through that lens and say, 
hey, you know, COVID is definitely dangerous. We definitely have to be safe and we will celebrate Halloween, but we're going to do it safely and just change it a little bit. So let's get into some of the low risk options for safe Halloween celebrations. Sure. And you know, Halloween's such a fun holiday. It's one of my favorite holidays. Actually, you get to dress up. And so there's plenty of ways you can actually do more of that and avoid the risky activities. So for low risk, low risk activities, you could go crazy with the decorations for your house, indoors and outdoors, get your kids involved, do the pumpkin carving, and even have costumes to wear on the day of Halloween. And that could be yourself as a parent or a caregiver, and also the kids and get them involved. Maybe it's making those costumes and maybe it's making cupcakes and treats that are that are uh, Halloween themes. What is a moderate risk or a higher risk activity is actually going out there and trick-or-treating. So I'd love to talk about how to maybe curb that. Yeah, so let's talk about trick-or-treating. That'll be something that most kids who have any memory of past Halloweens, they're probably gonna remember trick-or-treating. If you do decide to go ahead with Halloween and your kids have been spending time with others in either family groups or maybe a quarantine pod, is sticking with those groups the way to go when it comes to trick-or-treating? Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good idea, Carrie. You certainly don't want to do the traditional trick-or-treating of going to numerous houses and knocking on numerous doors, having that contact with people uh, closely. So I would say that if you do decide to do a modified trick-or-treating, it should be very limited. Maybe it's, you know, the neighbors that you've been with or the pods that you're using for school, uh, or maybe it's just like, you know, two houses that you go to, but you mostly stay inside, indoors in your own house. Those are ways to modify it. Also with trick-or-treating, I think it's really important to realize that people may have colds or coughs and they could have COVID and they don't know it. So children could have a runny nose, wipe their nose and then stick their hands into the bowls of candy. So just not a good idea to do it the traditional way. If you decide to participate in a very small way with only a few people, then I would put the treats widely spaced apart in individual bags and separated so that uh, with parental supervision, the kids don't get close to each other. Yeah, it can get very hard to control germs in a situation like that with kids, you know, grabbing things to your point. That's a really good point. Um, There's not enough Lysol in the world for a situation like that. (laughs) And don't forget, we can't forget that, you know, even if kids are not showing any symptoms, there's a lot of asymptomatic carriers. And in homes, certain homes, there might be people that are more at risk, like grandmas or people in chemotherapy, people with chronic conditions. So it's just something that we, we kind of just have to be really hyper aware of right now. Lots of neighborhoods are planning outdoor parties for Halloween. I know my neighborhood, there's been talk of getting the neighborhood together in an outdoor gathering. Is that okay? You know, I hear people say, oh, it's outdoors, so that's fine, right? Um, what, is, what is your advice there about these parties, gatherings for, for neighbors and friends that are outdoors? Is that safe? Great question, Carrie. So I think that if it's a very small gathering, again, the numbers, of course, I can't give you solid numbers because it depends on the community community infectivity rate. Like if COVID is really out there, like in some states uh, in the Midwest right now, then that's not a great idea at all. 
If it's a lower infectivity rate, then sure, you could have a small gathering, but then also you have to still observe the other rule, which is to stay distance. And, you know, if you are closer to wear the mask, and that's hard to do in a social setting. So I don't think that it's a great idea and it certainly has risk to it. But if you do it, make sure that, you know, you still have social distancing and it's a small group of people. What about dressing up? Are those plastic masks that come with a lot of kids' costumes going to protect them from COVID-19 the way like a cloth face mask does? The short answer is no. <laughs> and I think, I think I would stay away from the plastic masks. But here's the thing, like now we have this great opportunity to actually um, decorate the masks we're already wearing. So this is a great opportunity to have fun with them, like those cloth masks that you might have or have the kids decorate them and make them part of the costume. But definitely the plastic masks, there's no evidence that that helps anyone. And also I wouldn't suggest that you wear a mask underneath that plastic mask because, you know, we don't know how that would affect a child's breathing ability. That makes sense. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. What's a safe way to hand out candy? Should you put it in a bowl at the end of the driveway and let kids take it or prepackage it into little plastic bags? What is, what is your take on that if you're planning to, to hand out candy this year? I think that the bowls are not a good idea this year, and it's because you don't know whether the hands of those little children are necessarily clean. Uh, they might be sneezing into the hands or rubbing their runny nose, um, rubbing their eyes. So I think the best thing to do is to have it in separate bags, and if possible, uh, have them at the end of the driveway, have them like spaced apart, or alternatively, have those shoots that you we are seeing on social media where oh yeah, uh, child, I've seen those. Yeah, I don't know if you saw that or not, but you know where you can kind of push the candy into the shoot and it goes right into the bin that the child's actually carrying around. That's a little bit, uh, you know, it's, it's wonderful. But you know, if you don't have time to make that, then uh, you could just put them socially distanced at the end of the driveway. And again, I would really caution not to have a lot of trick or treaters. Maybe it's just with your neighbors and and under close supervision so the kids don't cluster in groups and get chatty and start spreading germs around. Well, it isn't only kids that like to celebrate Halloween. Um, what are some safer activities for adults that don't involve large groups of people like going to costume parties or visiting haunted house attractions, the things that you usually think of this time of year? That's such a great question. And as an adult myself, I loved all, I, I love all of those things. But unfortunately, <laughs> this year is not the year to do the haunted houses, nor is it the year to go to large costume parties. I think that we all have to make some compromises. Again, we don't have to cancel Halloween, but we just do it in a modified fashion. So if you want to get together with your neighbors or maybe a friend or two, you know, stay outside, you know, have a beverage with them outside, dress up in your costumes, but certainly large gatherings are not the way to go. Even if the haunted houses are open, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's safe to, to go. Completely. The haunted houses might be open, but in, in in an indoor atmosphere with people you don't know who are talking and screaming. And remember, the virus is transmitted most when somebody sneezes, coughs, talks, yells, sings. So not a great idea at all. Well, that takes care of Halloween. But let's look ahead a little bit to the holidays that are right on the heels of Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Hanukkah, the other winter holidays. Are we going to be looking at canceling family gatherings or trying to move them outside and keep them small, what's the way to go here? It's, it's so hard for people 
who've not being not been able to see friends and family this year a lot um, to, to have to think about that. But what's your advice? You know, Carrie, you make such a good point. I mean, I do worry about people's isolation and mental health right now. It has been really, really hard for people. And, you know, it's been hard not to socialize because we're all under stress and socialization is one of the buffers of stress. So I'm just going to point that out for a second. So, uh, but having said that, we have to be really careful with what we choose to do. So I think that if you are gathering with people, limit it to a very, very small gathering. I would do it outside if at all possible. And taking the precautions of distancing and having masks. This, the safest way to celebrate it is probably virtually. Uh, Dr. Fauci posted how he's celebrating it recently and he's doing it with his wife and, you know, doing it with, with a screen so his daughters can see them have their dinner for Thanksgiving. So it, it is a personal decision depending on how old you are, you have chronic health conditions, if there's a grandma, if there's someone with, with cancer or chemotherapy that's around. But in general, I think we need to make sure we play it safe this year. Better safe than sorry. And hopefully this will be just one weird year that we all look back on when we had that Zoom Thanksgiving that one time. So, and we all made it after that. Dr. Hansa Bargava, thank you so much for talking with us and giving your top Halloween safety tips. Thank you, Carrie. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for joining us. One more thing before we go, though. Please make sure you've subscribed to our show so you don't miss any of our great episodes. And just a reminder that you can keep up with WebMD's coverage on coronavirus and all things health and wellness on our social channels, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Hope you'll join us next time.